Colossians 3, verses 14 to 21 together. And uh, I'm one of the pastors came in after the call to worship. I'm not going to call you out, but I know who you are. Um, I'm Barnabas. I'm one of the pastors at Emmanuel Church, uh, just over in West Nashville, a sister church of yours. And uh, John Watson, the lead pastor here, is sick today. And so we will we'll pray for him at the end of the sermon. Um, but I have the privilege of filling in and preaching to you today, for you today, and hopefully also receiving the word with you today. And um, at Emmanuel, we we pray for Christ Church often. We love you guys. And it is, uh, it's absolutely thrilling to see what the Lord is doing here on the north side of Nashville in and through this body of believers. And I hope that this morning's message is a deep encouragement to all of you as you seek to serve and follow the Lord and, uh, and exemplify what it means to be the body of Christ. Well, since John isn't here, um, I feel great freedom to start my message with, uh, in a way that he would have absolutely no interest in whatsoever. And that is by referencing sports, or at least sports movies, which is probably had, had probably has slightly broader appeal than, uh, than, you know, the actual games themselves. So I'm going to read a few quotes from what I take, I think are some of the greatest sports movies ever. Some of these will resonate with you and just, See what stands out to you about these, and, and if you're familiar with the movies, you will know. So from Remember the Titans, there's the, the great scene in the pivotal game where the coach says, I don't want them, want them to gain another yard. You blitz all night. If they cross the line of scrimmage, I'm going to take every last one of you out. You make sure they remember forever the night they played the Titans. Or from any given Sunday, which no one would confuse with a great movie, but it does have some great moments. And I'm not going to do my best Al Pacino impression, uh, which isn't good at all. He says, the inches we need are everywhere around us. They're in every break of the game, every minute, every second. On this team, we fight for that inch. Or from that all-time classic, Mighty Ducks 2. Also Mighty Ducks 1, but I think this one's from 2. Ducks fly together, and then they all quack. Or from maybe the greatest sports movie ever, The Sandlot. Heroes get remembered, but legends never die. Now, if none of these ring a bell for you, uh, I pastorally encourage you, and as, a, as the outside pastor, I can be very strong in my wording. Uh, you really need to upgrade and increase your sports movie watching um, because you're missing out. Um, all of these lines, they're all parts of the most inspiring, game-changing speeches in these stories, in these films. They all come on the heels of conflict, usually of defeat. There's been a major moment of conflict. Everyone's kind of at their lowest, and this is the, the turning point. It's a challenge by the coach. Everybody's frustrated. And then they all lead to transformation. What follows these speeches is the greatest performances, the, the heartwarming victories. It's a team who becomes what it's supposed to be. And there's a reason like speeches that, that speeches like these resonate with us. You know, I, I heard some of the murmurs as I went through different ones and you, you remember those moments if you've seen it. And there's, there's a reason they're quoted and it's because of that sort of gripping seminal moment, moving of the heart towards what we ought to be. And the passage that we're going to look at today has a similar sort of energy and drive as these kinds of speeches. It's sort of the, the Apostle Paul's 
seminal moment mid-Ephesians. But of course, it takes these other speeches to the woodshed uh, because while they're fictional stories about games that don't ultimately matter, this is the true and mighty word of God and things that matter completely and ultimately. So after two plus chapters in Ephesians of Paul describing the miraculous and mind-blowing transformation of God's people from fractured into unified in Christ, he now overflows in passion, in a prayer for them that he also addresses to them. So it's sort of half sermon, half prayer woven together. And it's all based on God's great mercy, that, including that passage that we just prayed from in Ephesians 2. So Paul recalls what God has done and who God is in order to launch his hearers into what we ought to be as a church. So it's that transformational speech that shows us what we ought to be in Christ. So this morning, we're just going to spend a little bit of time looking at that prayer together. Ephesians 3, verses 14 to 21. Let's read it together now. I'll read it. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. Now, friends, this passage is so rich and so deep and so wonderful that it, it very nearly preaches itself. We could just probably throw it open for thoughts, reflections, comments, and come away deeply fed just because of the substance of what's here. But we're going to walk through the text in, in three sections. We're going to look at First, the foundation for the prayer. Then we're going to look at the requests in the prayer. And third, we're going to look at the promise and blessings of the prayer. So the foundation, the requests, and then the promise and the blessing. So let's start with the foundation for the prayer. Paul opens with the words, for this reason. Well, for what reason? So he's, he's clearly looking back at something in this prayer. Something inspired this. So to see what that is, we need to jump back a little bit. And if you go back to uh, chapter three, verse one, you'll see that he started the chapter with the exact same phrase, for this reason, I, and then he goes into a direction. So he had intended at the beginning of chapter three, which of course there weren't chapters when he wrote this. So he, he had intended at that portion to move into prayer. And then it's as if the Holy Spirit kind of interrupted him with a thought, and he spent several verses in this um, beautiful interlude of verses 2 to 13, talking about the mystery of the Jews and Gentiles being unified and how that was God's plan for all time. Well, here he picks back up. So we jump back to 3.1, we see for this reason. And so we know that what he's looking back on to inspire this prayer is everything that happens in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians, which I'm not going to preach this morning. What he's looking back on is the reality of God's reconciling work in Christ to create for himself a new body 
what he calls in chapter two, one new man in Christ, a unified dwelling for the presence of God among his people. Think about that for a second. The church of Jesus Christ is the dwelling place of God. It's temple language. He's talking about God dwelling in us. That's, that's the level of majesty and glory that Paul is, is responding to in this prayer. He's responding to the miracle of the oneness of Jew and Gentile, two natural born hateful enemies who are now unified in Christ, united in Christ, just as God had always intended. And it was such a profound miracle and mystery that Paul was moved to pray. He recognized that this wasn't a mundane thing. He hadn't just laid out God's strategy and said, well, he did this and then he did this and this is how it all came together. And it was a really, it was a really effective plan. This is, this is a miraculous thing. It was eternal. It had been God's plan for all time. It was of the mind and wisdom of God and the implications for God's people, that's us, are profound. So Paul naturally pours out praise and then pleads with the Lord for help. And that's exactly the right response when we see God at work. We see, we see Paul model it for us. We praise God for his work. We ask for God's help in his work. And then we entrust the work fully to him. What you don't see here is Paul taking any credit for anything. He is simply gushing with praise and with need. But notice that he doesn't move straight into making requests. He doesn't say, Father in heaven, please. First, he bows his knees, you see in verse 14. And that's not a normal posture of prayer, not not for uh, Jews of his day. They normally stood to pray because standing was how you showed honor. You just, the way that we would stand if the president walked in, or if you're at a wedding and the bride comes in, you stand out of honor for the one who is worthy of it. So something more is going on here. It's an act of fealty and submission. Paul enters into prayer in a position of total worship and respect, bowing before the eternal God, recognizing that everything that had led up to this moment is the work of God. There's nothing casual about this. There's no no flippancy about it. There's no pride in it. And in our day, we don't, in the West, we're not a terribly ceremonial culture. There are cultures around the world that are much more so, but in, in America, that's not really the case. So posture and gestures don't mean a ton to us. So we're not gonna read this and think that's of great significance. But what we can see in this is the the heart behind the action. When he bows his knees before the Father, he's bowing his heart before the Father. And that is the thing that we are called to do, to go to the Lord in complete submission and complete honor and complete humility with our lives. We can prostrate our lives before him, even if it's not normal in our culture to pray on our knees. Now, you're welcome to do that. It's not commanded. We are commanded to lay our hearts fully before the Lord the way that Paul demonstrates here. Now, who is he bowing before? He's bowing before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. See that in verse 15. And that could also be translated uh, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. So here we see Paul reiterating the unity of the family of God. 
when he calls God father, and he says that from him, the family gets our name, he's reiterating, restating that there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile, between insiders and outsiders. There's no hierarchy in the body of Christ. No longer can one group claim superiority because they have a particular spiritual father, which is the thing that in that day, the Jews were tempted to do. They would call themselves children of Abraham to the exclusion of everyone else. No longer can we do the same thing, which we're so tempted to do when we claim that our church tradition or our church heroes or our denominations make us true children of God to the exclusion of someone else as if we are more God's child than another who is in Christ. Rather, in Christ, we are all children of God, named as part of his family. And there is no other standard and there is no other unifier. Again, in our culture, a name, when we hear we hear from whom every family or the whole family is named, that doesn't carry a ton of weight because a name is just a label for us. A name doesn't carry identity significance. It's just how, you know, if we didn't have names, we wouldn't know who is who. We just have to describe people. So names are, names are labels. They're brands. They're not, they're not identities. We treat names with relatively little significance, but that wasn't the case for Paul and for people of his day. A name was a promise. It was a birthright. It was a status, or maybe it was a curse. To be given the name of a powerful person was to be given the status and the rights and the respect of that person. You moved from not respectable to respectable by sharing the name with that person. It was transformative for a person's whole reality. The same way that adoption is transformed, named by the father, which we all are, was to be claimed by the father as his own. And he did this for the whole family of God with no differentiation or gradation or separation. There weren't those who were more in and some others were closer to the fringes. There was in the family of God if you were in Christ. And then when the text says every family in heaven and on earth, that speaks to the fact that those who are alive and those who have already gone to be with the Lord are still one family. Death does not separate our unity in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we commune with the dead, but it does mean that Christ has always been the means of salvation. So there is not one generation who is more in Christ than another. Christ has always been the means of salvation. He has always been the the source of salvation, going back to the Old Testament. So what Paul is saying here is that those who had faith in God dating back to the Old Testament and those who have faith in God now are one family under one name. Now, before we move on, I just wanted, I want to notice one just beautiful, magnificent parallel between this prayer in Ephesians 3 and the Lord's prayer. Notice how Paul begins his prayer. I bow my knees before the Father. And then think about when Jesus' disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Both of these prayers address the heavenly father with that personal, affectionate, familial name. And then they bow before him in honor and praise and submission. So it's as if the apostles actually actually took note of Jesus's words. And when he said, pray then like this, they said, okay, we're going to do exactly that. 
And it is just a beautiful reminder that what we see woven through the New Testament is built on the foundation of Christ. These men are pointing us to Christ in every page. That's just an aside. Now that brings us to, that was the foundation. That brings us to the requests of this prayer. Number two, the requests. In these verses, we see Paul make three ascending requests. I say ascending because each one builds on the one that came before it. Picture um, a stairway or a ladder where there's a rung and then you climb from that one to the next and then the next. Each one pushes us further into communion of God. And each subsequent request answers a question about the one before it. It answers the question of why. So it's as if Paul prays a request. He says, Lord, we ask for this. And we ask for this because of this. And we ask for that because of this. And so they build on one another. That's kind of the logic of the text. But it's also the momentum of the text. There's, if you notice, there's, there's like two sentences in this whole thing. This is just Paul cascading in worship and there's sort of a pulsating urgency and energy to these, to these verses as he weaves them together. So let's look at them together. So the first request is in verse 16. Paul asks that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, when you look at this, it, it looks initially like two separate requests that we want to be strengthened and that we want Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith. But this is in fact a single reality that Paul is asking the Lord for. As believers, we have no access to the Holy Spirit with, without Jesus Christ. And we have no understanding or connection to Christ without the Holy Spirit. These two are inseparable. For Christ to dwell in our hearts through faith is for the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And for the Holy Spirit to grant us power in our inner beings, that simply means our souls, is to be strengthened by Christ. So Paul is making a single request that through the Holy Spirit, Christ would grow us in strength and power in our souls. Now, some of you might hear this and think, wait a minute, if Christians already have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, then what is Paul really asking for? Why is he praying this? Why do we need this? Because this sounds a little bit like he's asking for kind of a new anointing, something along those lines, or like he's praying for salvation. Well, we know that Paul is writing to those who have already been made alive by the Spirit through the work of Christ. We see that in chapter two. So we know that he's not praying for salvation here. Rather, the implication here, and this is, this is so magnificent and so helpful for us and so hopeful for us, is that for all of us who are believers and are in Christ, we have the potential for and the need for continual growth and strengthening by the Holy Spirit in perpetuity. John Calvin put it like this, and I love this quote, but believers have never advanced so far as not to need further growth. The highest perfection of the godly in this life is an earnest desire to make progress. The highest perfection of the godly in this life is an earnest desire to make progress. That's what this verse is addressing. And it's so attainable. 
This verse is praying for something that we can cling to and live in because it's not, it's not a level of achievement that we can't get to. It's simply ongoing growth in the Holy Spirit. You see progress, growth, strengthening. These are all part of what we call sanctification, becoming more like Jesus as we grow in holiness. And it's Jesus making that possible through his spirit. So Jesus gives us the ability in his spirit to be like Jesus. And we grow in that. And that's Paul's desire and that should be our desire. And that's, that is the request here, that yearning. And it's God doing the strengthening work in us according to the riches of his glory. We see that in verse 16. Now, earlier in Ephesians, Paul refers, there's a, there's a recurring theme because we see references to the riches of his grace. And he describes God as rich in mercy. And he tells of the great love with which he loves us. You're kind of catching on here that there's a there's sort of a gushing, overflowing reality of the goodness of God. And here we encounter God's richness of glory, just adding one more, one more, one more. This repetition and theme is not by accident. Paul wants us to know without a shadow of a doubt, especially as we are seeking the Lord for strength and help, that there is no shortage, there's no lack. There's no reason to think that God's goodness in all its expressions will run out or that he will hold back. This richness of grace and mercy and love and glory is a generous richness. None of these descriptions of God are about him hoarding his wealth of goodness. They are all about him giving and pouring them out for us. God's not collecting these things. He has no interest in keeping his goodness from us. If that was the case, why did Jesus need to come? Rather, he's pouring them out and he will never run out. So there is no reason to doubt that God can and will answer this prayer for strength and for help in the lives of believers through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, you'll remember that I said each of the requests answers the question why about the one that comes before it. So as we look at the next request, we see that it answers the question of why we need an outpouring of strength in our souls from the Spirit. We obviously need it for growing in, in Christ-likeness, but there's even more to it than that. This is not a generalized empowerment or sort of a vague spiritual gifting. It's not just sort of, a, you know, kind of a caffeinated burst of spiritual energy. It's strength for a very particular purpose. And Paul lays that out in the second request. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The purpose of the strength that Paul has asked the Lord for is to know and comprehend the love of Christ. He says that we are to be rooted and grounded in love that is growing and immovable in love. And that's especially poignant because of the context. This formerly divided, hostile church is now to be defined by love in Christ. And that's the root and foundation of every Christian church. That's the root and foundation of Christ's church, an Emmanuel church. And Paul is praying that Christ, by the Holy Spirit, would give believers the strength to grasp the immensity of the love of Christ so that we can live in it. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't have a mental category for needing strength to experience and understand love. That's a weird request, frankly, in almost every context. Because love is warm, love is comforting, love is welcome, 
We don't have a problem receiving love. In fact, we, we yearn for it. So why do we need strength to know and receive the love of Christ? What's going on here? When we, we think of strength as being necessary for bearing burdens or going, you know, going the extra distance or doing something difficult. So why do we need it for love? Well, I can tell you what's not going on here. Paul is not saying that the love of Christ is burdensome. Rather, he's saying that it's too great, too magnificent, too perfect, too effusive, too unconditional, too eternal for an unsanctified and unstrengthened heart like yours and mine to comprehend fully. Paul says that this love surpasses knowledge. And so he's praying that we would understand that which cannot be understood and that we would comprehend the incomprehensible. So of course we need the help of Christ to understand and receive the love of Christ. We don't have what it takes to do so. And then he just keeps going because then we read of the breadth and length and height and depth of Christ's love that tells us this, this tells us that this, this, this incomprehensible love extends so far in every direction that we could not ever on our own understand or deeply experience in it. It, it, it extends beyond our, our understanding. It extends beyond our capacity to feel. It extends beyond our capacity to share. It is immense. As sinners and as finite people, we don't have the capacity or, abil- or ability or strength to wrap ourselves around or to receive in our sinful hearts the fullness and the profundity and the richness of this love. We need help. We need to be transformed. We need to be strengthened so that our minds can comprehend and our hearts can know in that familial, rich, the way you know one you love best way, the love of Christ in a meaningful, intimate, personal way in all of its fullness. Imagine a man who has been left in the desert for several days. He's been abandoned. He is dying of thirst. He is on his his last breaths and he's rescued. If the rescuer was to take a gallon of ice cold water and begin to pour it down that man's throat in an effort to rehydrate him, it would kill him. He doesn't have the strength to take in the very refreshment and goodness that he needs. He needs to be healed and strengthened by stages growing to receive the fullness of the refreshment that he needs. This is our state of life and heart as we encounter the fullness of God's love. We need to be strengthened to receive the fullness of the goodness that will refresh us and make us whole and heal us. And while we're talking about understanding the love of Christ, let's take a moment to consider it and gaze into it using the description that Paul gives us, breadth, length, height, depth. John Stott said this, and he said it beautifully. The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. And if you've received the love of Christ, you know that to be true. You know that it 
it overwhelms you and it extends beyond your capacity to understand. And it has gotten underneath the worst of you and lifted you out. And it continues to pursue you when you are not worthy of it. And you have never encountered or even seen the borders of it. And how much does that love of Jesus differ from my love or yours? If we were stuck with our capacity to love, we would be lost. Thank God we're not. No one is unreachable by the love of Christ. He overflows with it. The love of Jesus never ceases or weakens or wanes. He's not affected by circumstance or mood or fatigue. We cannot sin our way out of the love of Christ. We can reject it, but we cannot sin so much that he can't love past that. There is no evil deed, no heinous act that we could do or that we have done for which he did not already lay down his life in love. The love of Christ will carry those who trust in him to redemption. It will see you to the end. It will carry you to healing, whatever you are in the midst of. And it will carry us to the heights of heaven, to glory, to perfection. There are no limits on its ability to transform a person. When we hear about the height and breadth and length and depth of, of the love of Christ, this is what it means. We can't get outside of it. Not if we want to be in it. And friends, this is why we need to be strengthened in order to comprehend the love of Christ. Because as I consider the love of Jesus, as we consider this together, just this, this paltry description that I've given you, it's about the best I can do. We run up against our limits. I run up against my capacity to understand or to imitate. I don't have words for it. I don't know anything to compare it to. So I need and you need and we need to be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in our inner beings, in our souls, so that we can comprehend and know and receive and take joy in this incomprehensible, infinite love of Christ. And I use the word we intentionally because this is not primarily an individual experience or reality. Everything in Ephesians 1 through 3 up to this point has laid out the vision and the declaration that all of this is a corporate whole body of Christ thing. Paul speaks of the body of Christ, the embodiment of Jesus. We need this strengthening together. That's why Paul prays that we would be strengthened with all the saints, alongside, in the company of. We need the whole people of God to know the whole love of God, John Stott said. We see the love of Christ, we experience the love of Christ, and we know the love of Christ in all of its dimensions more fully with and through one another. What is happening here this morning and every time you gather with fellow believers is an opportunity to do that to know and experience and share the love of Jesus in a way that you cannot on your own. Now is as God intends. And as amazing as this is, the incomprehensible love of Christ, it is not an end in itself because it too is for a purpose. It, it has one more request on top of it. And that brings us to the third one, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is a very intimidating phrase to preach because the fullness of God is a lot. Paul is asking that we would be strengthened in our inner beings by the Holy Spirit so that we can know the incomprehensible love of Christ so that we may be filled with the fullness of God. 
What is that? Well, track with me here as we, we lay out the kind of the logic and the sequence of what we've seen as Paul builds us to this point. Up to this point in Ephesians, and I realize you haven't read all of that recently, so trust me on this one. You can go back and verify it later. Up to, up to this point in Ephesians, we have seen some themes of who God is and what he's like. We see his lavishness and richness poured out. We see that God's power and grace and love are surpassing. We see repeatedly and emphatically that he makes these available to us in Christ. So all of that goodness of God is available in Christ. Well, Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 tells us that for in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And we just saw two verses ago that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. So put these pieces together with me. God's lavishness and overflowing goodness is available to us in Christ. All the fullness of God dwells in Christ. And Christ dwells in us by the Holy Spirit through faith. So the fullness of God in us is the presence of Christ in us that he has already made available to us. That's crazy. The reason Paul prayed that we would comprehend the immensity of Christ's love is so that we could experience the fullness of God. It's the conduit through which we, we have an expanded heart, mind, understanding and reality with God. In order to be filled with the fullness of God, we must know Christ deeply and intimately and personally to know the breadth and length and height and depth of his love. And this is both a result and a pursuit for us. It's a result of the work of Christ in our lives. It's the fruit that comes out of that to strengthen and to sanctify us. And as we saw earlier, we're never done growing into this. So if you feel like you're not there yet, you're not. That's okay, keep going. The more you experience of the love of Christ, the more you experience of the love of Christ in ever increasing and ever enriching ways. So we aspire to more of this fullness of this love of Christ himself. That is our deepest desire and pursuit individually and as a church. That's our compass. It's our motivation. It's what shapes who we are and how we live. I feel the need to pause here and just say, I imagine this is not true for everybody in the room. Some of you hear this and feel swept up into it. And some of you hear this and feel on the outside of it. If you don't know Jesus, or if Jesus doesn't captivate you, and he doesn't grasp your heart and your imagination in this way, remember what we saw about his love. It is broad enough to wrap you up. It is deep enough to get underneath the worst of you and to lift you up. It is strong enough to overcome your apathy or your rebellion. And I urge you not to continue rebelling because he will come and get you. Just turn to him and ask the way that Paul asks. You can use your words, not Paul's words. This is a prayer for those who are in Christ and for those who want to be in Christ. It's how you grow if you are in and it's how you get in if you're not. Just ask. And I'm sure that 
I know I'll, I'll be happy to stick around afterwards. I know the elders and probably many of the members of this church would love to pray with you if that's a thing you would like to know how to do. And that brings us to our third point, the promise and the blessing. I love ending on a high note. After this, this, this sort of rhapsody, this profound sweeping prayer, lifting the church into the immeasurable love of Christ and the fullness of God, Paul launches the church, he launches us into our mission with a promise and a blessing. So first, let's look at the promise. In verse 20, he reminds us of the extent and the shape of the power within us. When he says, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. When he says that, he's reminding us that God's power far surpasses our imagination. In the same way we cannot comprehend the love of Christ in full, we also cannot fathom the capacity of God to work in us and through his people. We get uncomfortable with grand visions of what God is capable of through his church. I'm going to say a couple things here. And even as I say them, I think this sounds insane. So stick with me here. Imagine God using his church, churches that pursue Christ wholeheartedly to see whole cities, whole neighborhoods come to know Jesus, mass conversions. Imagine God using his people, his church to lead every single loved one who you pray for, who breaks your heart with their rebellion against God to Jesus. Imagine God using the gospel declaration and the ministry of his church to put every therapist out of business because of the level of psychological, relational, and emotional healing that God can bring about. That's not to spit on therapists, but just to say, God can do that. Now, I just said those things, and even as I say them, I think that is profoundly unlikely. And maybe this side of heaven, those things are unlikely. We, we, there's a reason we need the church, and we need wise counsel. But I can imagine them, and you can imagine them. And God can do far more than we ask or imagine. If these are God-honoring things and we can imagine them, then God can do more than them. And we as the church are tasked with asking him to do just this and participating in his work. And we also see here how God works according to the power within us. And that is the Holy Spirit. So God can do far more than we ask or imagine if it is through the Holy Spirit. Our imaginations and asking must be in accordance with the Spirit, accordance with what God's will is. Often we find it easy. So the flip side of being reluctant to think big things that God can do is to take the power that God has promised us and turn it to our own ends. So on the one hand, we're reluctant to take God at his word. And on the other hand, we, we twist his word to do what we want. It's easy to take these promises of goodness and love and twist them for our ill-advised purposes. But this verse tells us that the direction in which, it tells us the direction in which the spirit will work toward honoring Christ. That is the direction of God's promise through his people. That's the mission of the Holy Spirit. So that means we ask and imagine and participate in that direction. 
not for our own honor or glory or benefit, not for the growth of our church, not for the strengthening of a ministry, not for any personal gain, but for the honoring of Jesus Christ through his people in alignment with the spirit. So that means that our ideas and our imaginations are neither the driver nor the limitation for what God can do through his church. And thank God for that. My imagination does not tell God what he can do, nor does it limit what he is capable of doing. Just because I can't think of it doesn't mean God can't do it. And just because I want it to happen doesn't mean God will do it. In alignment with his spirit, we walk with him and we will continually be amazed at what he both can do and what he will do through his people. Now, finally, Paul blesses the church by glorifying God says, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. When Paul says, to him be the glory, he's not adding anything to God that God doesn't already have. He is not lifting God above his station, but simply calling attention to the station that God has and praising him for who he is and saying that because of who he is, every bit of glory is pointed his way in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. So that means that the church, this miracle of a unified, diverse, countercultural body that was brought about by Jesus Christ is how God will be glorified in the world and to the heavens. This really matters. And all this that we have seen and reveled in and marveled at that God has done through the ages, across generations, across millennia, through means of sinful people that culminated in the work of his son, all that is for his glory and worthiness forever. And it means that the church will not pass away. When he says throughout all generations and he promises this, It means that all generations for all time will encounter Christ through his church. And this echoes of Matthew 28, where Jesus gives this great promise that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the basis for this. So he's promising that his church will go on until his return. We do not have anything to worry about. God's wisdom will not fail. He will be glorified through his son and through his son's church. So yes, to him be glory forever and ever indeed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we we walk in the very requests that your word just laid out for us. We ask that we would be strengthened We ask that we would know the incomprehensible love of Christ. We ask that we would be filled with the fullness of God. And we ask all these things based on the fact that you you have made all of this available to us in Christ. And that for all who have faith, we are in Christ. That is our location. That is our reality. So would you open our eyes to those realities so that we can be strengthened by them, that we can take joy in them, that we can be encouraged by them, that we can be, we can gain healing in our souls from them, that we can be unified in them, that this body, Christ church, would be so remarkably unified in this 
incomprehensible love of Jesus that you would do profound and mighty things in and through them. We know you can. And we know that you can do far more than we ask or think. So we place our hopes in that because of the mighty work of Jesus. And Father, as we close now, we also lift up Pastor Watson, that you would heal him, that you would encourage him this morning, that as he heals, you would give him a chance to rest so that he can come back and continue to faithfully serve this wonderful church that he loves so much and that you've put him here to serve. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, let's prepare our hearts now to receive Holy Communion.